Hey church family, it's good to be with you this morning. I wish I was actually with you this morning. Um, got pretty injured yesterday mountain biking. Um, thought I was 25 years old again and was doing some jumps, doing just fine, and then hit one in particular that just threw me in the wrong direction and to avoid trees and other things, I, I hit the ground really hard, so ended up cracking two ribs. So I am in a lot of pain right now. Took some pain meds earlier, but doesn't seem to be helping. But in any case, um, I'm glad that you gathered together to worship the Lord today. Um, we don't cancel worship services because El Pastor is out or uh, for any other reason unless we absolutely have to. And um, thought what I would do is go ahead and pre-record this message uh, so that you would have something to at least hear this morning. And uh, But I'm super glad that you all came together. Of course, we're going to be uh, continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been trucking right along and focused primarily on Paul's defense of scriptural worship in chapter 12, um, where he corrects the Corinthians' carnal views of the spiritual gifts and the utilization of those gifts in service to one another unto the Lord. Uh, we've already talked about how they had that really messed up and how they weren't recognizing their spiritual gifts properly, at least with the tongues and other things. And uh, when it came time to employ those things in service to one another, it really became more of a show and other things. And so we've been centered on point three um, for many weeks now which is the diversity of spiritual gifts and we've been kind of unpacking one by one um, the spiritual gifts that Paul lists in chapter 12 nine of them to be precise and we've been camped out on the spiritual gift of tongues for many weeks or at least three weeks so we can pick up where we left off last Sunday, and we'll start again at H, and it's tongues again. I'll say tongues continued, continued, verse 10D, and I promise this is it. This is this is it for tongues. You're probably saying, praise God. Uh, verse 10D, I'll just read it once more, to another various kinds of tongues. This is how he puts it. And really, what I've got is just one more crucial point I want to make concerning the spiritual gift of tongues. Um, I've, I've made quite a few important points in, in recent weeks. I'll give you scripture on it. I've, um, I've, I've come at it from multiple angles, and I've got one more angle and crucial point I want to drive to you today. And I would begin by saying I and other cessationists, those who think that tongues are not for today, and those, those cessationists are those who think that um, they believe that there are certain spiritual gifts that are no longer operative, while there are others that are. And so I and other cessationists, I would just say it in humility as best I can. We certainly seem to have church history on our side um, when we take up our cessationist position. We, we definitely appear to have the full breadth of church history on our side when it comes to this issue. And what I would want to do is firstly take you to the history of the New Testament. As the New Testament was written, this book, this book, this book, this book, there's a kind of order to that, and things are said in each book. And so there's not just church history that exists, but there's also the history of the New Testament and how it's put together. And so um, I, I want to start there so we can have a full bandwidth view, so to speak, of history. And I'll ask this, did you know that the spiritual gift of tongues are mentioned only in the earliest books of the New Testament. Some books were written soon, some were written down the road, and some were written in the 90s, or in the, yeah, 90 AD, 94 AD. So they were written over several years, and we only see glossa as a spiritual gift in the earliest books. It just kind of drops and disappears. And this is significant because it demonstrates why many cessationists like myself arrive at our conclusion that the gift of tongues in particular has ceased. Um, 
we know that Paul wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 epistles. He's a, he was a very prolific writer, writes almost half of the New Testament. And within his 12 epistles or letters or small books, whatever you want to call it, the spiritual gift of tongues appears in only one of all of his 12. Just one epistle, that's it. One. Nowhere else. I'm talking about the spiritual gift of tongues. It just appears in one. And that is, obviously, 1 Corinthians, which was the fourth book to be written by Paul. Uh, Paul wrote around 12, and 1 Corinthians was like the fourth on his list to be written. And it is the only epistle that he wrote that actually has glossa as a spiritual gift. Uh, there is no mention of the spiritual gift of tongues or glossa in any of his other epistles. It does not appear anywhere else. Not even in the second epistle to the Corinthians. There's no mention of it there, which I find to be very interesting. You know, sometimes you write a letter to people and, okay, well, it looks like they're repenting and doing better, but I need to kind of build them up in the same way, right? Maybe I need to write another section on tongues just to be safe and... We don't see anything like that in 2 Corinthians. It's just not there. So, of all the books that Paul wrote, namely 12, it only appears in one. And it does appear 15 to 19 times, I think, in 1 Corinthians, and that's significant. But that's it. So you don't find it anywhere else. We're all familiar with Peter. Um, he's called Cephas in the book of 1 Corinthians, right? Not Bo-Cephas, uh, but Cephas. And he's also called Simon, and he's called Peter. And when he was in real hot water, he was called Simon Peter by Jesus. But Peter, he wrote, what, two epistles, as well as dictated a gospel, the gospel of Mark. John Mark is the human instrument that recorded the gospel of Mark through the tongue of Peter, as Peter is recounting and, and explaining all that he experiences. So it's really Peter's gospel in a way. Uh, and so you got you got a couple epistles that are amazing. First, Second Peter, amazing, and then you've got the Gospel of Mark, and you have only one mention of the spiritual gift of tongues in Mark sixteen seventeen. One mention. So that doesn't appear in Peter's epistles. Doesn't appear anywhere else. It only appears in that very elusive, or not elusive, but I should say mysterious passage uh, where Jesus says that those who believe in me will speak in tongues, new tongues, and these sorts of things. And we talked about that last week. So that's the only place that it appears. So you've got it in 1 Corinthians. You've got it in Mark 16. Uh, James, half-brother of Jesus, right? Pastor of the Jerusalem church, wrote one of the greatest epistles in the whole New Testament, the book of James, that we studied a few years ago. It's amazing, so challenging. And he, he wrote that epistle, and there is not one mention of spiritual gift of tongues there. Not one. Um, John wrote a gospel. He also wrote Revelation and three short epistles. Um, we're all big fans of John's writings. I'm a huge fan of Revelation now that I think I can better grasp it. His epistles are wonderful. They're short and sweet. Um, he's dealing with apostasies and all sorts of things in there. And then his gospel. There's just nothing like it. Um, there's absolutely no mention of the spiritual gift of tongues in any of his writings. Not in Scripture. Uh, glossa is used in Revelation, which is something that John wrote, but it does not ever refer to the spiritual gift of tongues. It does refer to human languages, but not in a supernatural ability to speak them. So we need to be accurate when we say this. You will find the Greek word glossa in Revelation, but not in reference to a spiritual gift. It only is used to describe human languages. Uh, Jude, another half-brother of Jesus. All Jesus' family made it into the Bible. Pretty amazing. But Jude, he's another half-brother of Jesus. He wrote a single-page epistle. There is zero mention of the spiritual gift of tongues in Jude. Um, question we need to ask is, why does the, spirit, the spiritual gift of tongues just abruptly and permanently disappear from the pages of Scripture, and more particularly the New Testament. It just vanishes, literally, just gone. It, it, you see it heavy in 1 Corinthians. You see a spot of it in Mark. Um, you know, it, it, it appears in the book of Acts a few times, and then it, that's it. It's just gone. 
Why? Well, it's because I and others believe it ceased like Paul said it would. That's why. It's not recorded, corrected, admonished, recorded, anything in the rest of the books of the New Testament because it was gone. And I am a firm believer that if it was still around, we'd see some corrections in Paul's other epistles and stuff because it was so highly abused. So it just disappears. Why? Because I and many others believe it's gone. It disappeared as Paul said it would. He said, as for tongues, they will cease. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. So we, we, we read that text and we think, well, that must be way down the road. Well, it could have been in the first century. It's, there's nothing in the scripture that would make us believe that it has to be way down the road or at the return of Christ. It just doesn't say when. It just says it will. And with the absence of it in... Okay. <laughs> It appears in three books in the New Testament. There are 24 other books in the New Testament where the spiritual gift of tongues is completely absent. That is not a reality we can easily reject. So, And I actually have a timeline, a chronology for its ceasing. I think I've kind of, according to my calculations, I said this in 2014, I think people thought I was nuts. Uh, but I place the moment of this spiritual gift ceasing sometime between the completion of 1 Corinthians and Paul's incarceration at Rome. That's when I would place it, because according to the writings of Paul, they kind of there's some that land there. He wrote his prison epistles. There's no mention of it there. Um, it, it somehow ended between the completion of 1 Corinthians and then his trip to Rome, which came probably less than a year later. Um, it is when he wrote his famous prison epistles if the spiritual gift of tongues was so crucial, because today people say the church can't live without it. Remember, I read from a letter that I got like weeks back and it said, you and others like you are not going to make it through the coming persecution unless you're baptized in the spirit and speak in tongues and get all the benefits of that, which I just found to be a loving thing from that man, but ridiculously ignorant. Um, so he and many others are under this weird delusion that the spiritual gift of tongues is just so crucial to the church that the, the church can't carry on without it. It's not going to be able to survive what's coming. You've got to get this baptism. You've got to get this, this, this bottom line, spiritual gift of tongues is so crucial. If it's so crucial to the church, why isn't it mentioned in the prison epistles? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Better yet, why isn't it mentioned in the pastoral letters that came later? First and Second Timothy and Titus. Why isn't it mentioned there? If it's so critical to the body of Christ as a whole, why don't we find it in the pastoral letters? There's not one word spoken about it there. If there were ever a set of writings for which instructions on the spiritual gift of tongues would seem necessary or would be necessarily, necessary, surely it would be in a set of pastoral letters. Come on. If tongues are still active and ongoing by the time he writes to Timothy and Titus and those things are still being abused because we know they would be, you would think that he would have said something to those pastors. Um, not a word is said about them. Not in the prison epistles that immediately follow 1 Corinthians, nothing. Tongues were so utterly common and wildly popular in first century churches the need for pastoral instruction would be truly great on the matter. Especially when we factor in all those aberrations and fake pagan tongues, ecstatic gibberish, all of the imitations that we see at Corinth and all this. But the fact of the matter is we see not even one word on tongues in the pastoral letters or even in the prison epistles. At one point we do see Paul admonish Timothy to rebuke those who dot 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 devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, and speculations. That's what First Timothy one four. We do see him say something there, but he doesn't get specific and describe what the myths and endless genealogies are. I have a theory. I think the endless genealogies are angel gene genealogies. Um, there is a fake gospel book that um, I don't know if it's the Gospel of Thomas or one of those goofy ones that never made the cut and came way later, but it has, you know, we have genealogies in our Bibles, you know, and Joe Bob begot uh, Fred Bob, blah, blah, blah. You know, you sit there and read these things. You're like, I'm looking for a name I know. 
Joseph and Mary, hello! You know, I know Joseph, so... Uh, but there are angel genealogies in one of those false gospel books. And, and I think that it may have, that particular one may have been around in this time. And Paul exhorts Timothy to tell these people that are focused on angel genealogies and the other thing, to just tell them, stop it. This is nonsense. I've been wondering if when Paul says myths in that text, if he was referring to if the myths were gibberish, ecstatic gibberish, fake tongues, what the Corinthians were doing. I've kind of wondered, or maybe some other mystery religion practices. He doesn't say, so we don't know for sure, but it's interesting to ponder. And the way my mind works, especially when I'm laid up with cracked ribs, um, I, I want to try to think these things through. We don't know for sure if Paul was referring to the spiritual gift of tongues. Um, we just don't know exactly what he was referring to there, but it certainly could have been. Um, we know that the spiritual gift of tongues, or just tongues in general, have reached the level of myth today. Um, it's an aberration, it's only a myth, and it doesn't date back very far, and we'll talk about that. Um, so in totality, the spiritual gift of tongues appears once in Mark, five times in Acts, 19 times in 1 Corinthians, and that's it. Beyond those three books and those appearances, it literally is absent from the entire rest of the New Testament. 24 books, gone. We don't see it anywhere. It's a pretty good reason to consider cessationism. Um, if the absence of glossa in the form of spiritual gift, if we, if we, you know, if the absence of that spiritual gift of glossa in the form of spiritual gift, if it's absent in the rest of the New Testament, um, if that doesn't indicate that it ceased, it certainly indicates that it's not as, as important as some have made it to be. Right? Amen? Like, it's only in three books. There's 24 other books where we don't see it. If that doesn't indicate that it's actually ceased and gone, then it certainly would indicate to us that it's not important or something that we should be worried about or focused on. And yet again, you have great massive groups of people today and it's it's the center of their ministries the center of their lives so really bizarre um fact is it's not crucial to our faith it's not crucial to the church like I say this with love that like charismatics say it it is not crucial it's not a it's not a close-fisted doctrine it's not something that um the church cannot get along without if paul if, if god ca caused it to cease like i suspect he did, then obviously he knows what's best for his, for the bride of his son, and it's okay for it to go. Um, I would say that tongues doesn't even reach the level of secondary issue. It doesn't even rise that high. Uh, if it, anything at all, it'd be way, way, way down on the list of Christian doctrines and beliefs. Way, way down. So, I don't think it should be taken as seriously, and quite frankly, I believe it's gone. Um... And I would say this, the spiritual gift of glossa, or supernatural ability to speak in tongues, it, it obviously didn't have a very long shelf life. Um, it came and went pretty quick, quickly, right? It came on Pentecost and then left sometime in the middle of Paul's ministry. That's what I propose. That's my theory because it makes sense to me as I study the word. And this is because it didn't have a long shelf life. This is because it... It was only needed during a particular time for particular reasons, right? We've already described how it was uh, to join believers who couldn't communicate together. It was a sign. It was a judgment, a reversal of judgment. Um, we can get along without any of those purpose to, purposes today. We, we don't have to have those things. We don't have to have tongues functioning so those things can be achieved. Um, and I do believe that this is the testimony of Scripture and it's not that, that remember we're talking about the history of the new testament according to the history of the new testament tongues fell off early on and are not recorded anywhere else and so that's why i think they're gone but it's not just the testimony of bible history the history of the new testament it's also the history it's also church history uh if if we do a, an analysis or study of church history we find that it's very hard to find throughout 2,000 years. Uh, John Chrysostom, he's around 347 to 407 AD, and then Augustine, Augustine, um, 
however you want to say his name, Cameron will say it three different ways in the sermon. We saw that years ago, and I'm still hitting on him for that. I shouldn't, but uh, he was around 354 to 430 A.D., so a little bit, a little bit younger than John Chrysostom. And these guys are considered the greatest theologians of both the Eastern and Western churches of antiquity. These men, there is nobody like them today. They were brilliant and so well-versed and studied in Scripture. And they didn't have Google, and they didn't have commentaries. They didn't have much. Um, both of these monumental pillars, these men who were pillars in the early church, and they still are pillars, both considered the spiritual, God, uh, spiritual gift of tongues just absolutely obsolete before their day. Gone. Gone by the 4th century. Now, they believe it was more so for the apostolic era, but they say without a doubt that it was gone well before these men were ever born. Uh, Chrysostom stated categorically that tongues had ceased before his time. Um, and then Augustine referred to tongues as a sign that was adapted to the apostolic age. So what, he's, what Augustine's saying is that it was for that time, you know, up to John. Once John died, he's the, he's the end of the apostolic age. Um, we're not talking about the patristic father age, that's the early church fathers. We're talking about the real apostles. Once they died, that's it. And that's Augustine's view, that's Chrysostom's view, the two greatest theologians of that day. Uh, interestingly, during the first 500 years of the church, the only people who claimed to speak in tongues were the followers of a guy named Montanus. And he was a known heretic. So... Within 500 years, uh, you know, of, of church early church history, there was there's really only like one account of any group of quote unquote Christians claiming to speak in tongues, and they were the followers of a heretic. Um, the next time any significant tongue speaking movement arose within Christianity was in the late 17th century. A group of militant Protestants in southern France claimed to speak in tongues. Uh, the group sometimes called the Savenol Prophets. Uh, they are remembered for their political and military activities. These are supposed to be Christians. They're known for their politics and their militaristic endeavors. They are not known for their spiritual legacy. Uh, they were an anti-Roman Catholic group. They advocated for the use of deadly lethal force against Roman Catholics especially against the papacy and the popes. Um, they tried to militarize themselves and fight against the papacy and the popes. And that, that, thing, that, thing, that thing was a behemoth in, uh, during that time. And so they, they tried to stand up to the Roman Catholics, but not with the power of the gospel, but with the power of the sword. And of course, they were completely wiped out, and persecuted and destroyed and killed. Um, and they were, quote-unquote, tongue speakers. And by the way, when I talk about tongue speakers throughout history. It's usually ecstatic gibberish that we're talking about here. And then on the other side of the spectrum, like you've got the Sauvignon prophets, and then on the other side, you've got the uh, Jansenite, uh, Jansenists, Jansenists. Uh, they were a group of royal uh, Roman Catholic loyalists who opposed the reformers teaching on justification by faith. So these guys were around during the 1500s, 1600s, during the Reformation. They gave their allegiance to the papacy and the popes, Roman Catholicism, and they uh, led theological attacks. I don't know if they led any militaristic or violent attacks against Protestants. A lot of people did during that time. I can't say for sure on that, but these, this group of people also claimed to speak in tongues. And then another group was the Shakers. Hey, the movers and the Shakers, right? Okay, note to self, do not shake while you have broken ribs. I just killed myself. Um, there was another group called the, I'm going to say it still, the Shakers. No movement. The Shakers. They were an American sect. Uh, they had Quaker roots, not the oatmeal, but the people. Uh, they flourished in the mid-1700s. Mother Anne Lee was their founder um, she literally claimed to be a female Jesus. She was the Messiah. Uh, uh, Messiah, I don't even know what you'd call it, but uh, Miss Messiah, so to speak. That is her claim. 
On top of that, she claimed to speak in 72 tongues. So she had she had a full vocabulary of gibberish, which I think is very talented. Um, in the early 19th century, a Scottish Presby pastor, his name was Edward Irving, um, him and his the members of his congregation claimed to speak in tongues. This group eventually became the Catholic Apostolic Church, uh, which is known to have taught a whole bunch of false heretical doctrines. Um, and then from the middle or end of the first century, uh, for, uh, for the, wait a minute, from the middle or end of the first century to the mid-1800s. So you're talking about with the death of John, we go into the patristic age where we had the early church fathers. From that moment all the way up to the mid-1800s, we see no Bible-affirming expressions of the gift of tongues. Okay, we see a few spotted examples throughout church history of tongues, but it's gibberish. It's the same kind of gibberish that Hindus and Buddhists speak, Chanda, Kanda, Bandala, whatever it is, that's what you see. There, there's not any record anywhere that I can find where we actually have the real organic gift manifested during that 18, 1700 years. Nothing. There's nothing. It's just imitations. There's no true glossa, we might say. There's only a handful of apostate cults speaking in ecstatic gibberish. That's all we have. This is not... I'm not saying this because I lean cessationist. I'm saying it because that's what church history reveals. Maybe some might find that hard to believe because it's so prevalent today, but um, just because something prevalent doesn't make it right. Uh, in the early 20th century, there were a few individuals who claimed to speak in tongues, like William J. Seymour. Um, he was a Presbyterian minister at one time and then kind of got involved with the holiness movement. He actually uh, was a pastor in Texas and taught baptism of the Holy Spirit and tongues and all the stuff. He really would be the poster child for today's Pentecostalism. He, in fact, he is. Uh, but he claimed these things. People weren't uh, too excited about it in Texas, so he didn't get much of a good reception there. And um, somebody passed through his church, I think, in Texas and was from Los Angeles and invited him to come speak at their church in Los Angeles. So uh, he literally didn't just come to speak. He moved from Texas to Los Angeles. And in 1906, he was part of the alleged breakout of prophecy, miracles, and tongues that came to be known as the Azusa Street Revival. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. Um, Pentecostalism was around at this time, but it was very, very small. It had only a few numbers, and it was an offshoot of the holiness movement. Um, I would say that it was new and small during the decades leading up to 1906, uh, the Azusa Street Revival became Pentecostalism's major launch point. Um, I was doing some research on Azusa Street and down in that particular area of Los Angeles, which is just a, probably a mile or so away from Dodger Stadium and about five miles away from Hollywood, which makes me go, hmm, that's interesting. It's by Hollywood. Hmm, the place that creates everything. Um, at the actual location or close to it, there's a plaque that says Azusa Street, home of the Azusa Street Revival, birthplace of Pentecostalism. So Pentecostalism did exist before Azusa Street, but it was very, very small, inconsequential, hardly known. And then from 1906 on, it, it really got wings and started to fly. You fast forward to our day from 1906, you've got a 117 year difference. Pentecostalism's numbers have risen to 644 million adherents. It's the fastest growing sect in Christendom. It's surpassed all the rest of them. Um, in fact, religious scholars are now estimating that over 30% of all Christians will be Pentecostal slash charismatic by 2025. That's in two years. 
30% of all Christians. And that's not just in our country, it's in the world. So the rapid movement, explosive growth, growth of this movement is it's unprecedented. There's just nothing like it. And it, the epicenter for that is Azusa Street, 1906, with Seymour, Pastor Seymour, leading that. And I say this with love in my heart. Um, a movement that is characterized by emotionally driven and sometimes chaotic worship, that's what we've seen, that has no lengthy or commendable history. It just doesn't that is led primarily by prosperity-pushing ministers. This is a fact. That practices ecstatic gibberish and calls it glossa. That is also constantly questioned by normal Bible-believing evangelicals. Here's the point. All of that, add all that up, and it is the fastest growing sect in Christendom. That's reality. Why such growth? Well, there's a lot of speculation as to why, but I like Justin Peters' evaluation. Um, he does, he basically does not attribute Pentecostalism's explosive growth to the Holy Spirit like Pentecostals do. He attributes the explosive growth of the movement to its marketing and its message. Um, it markets signs and wonders, and the fact of the matter is people want to see signs and wonders. They always have since the fall. So, um, of course, Jesus said it's a wicked and perverse generation that wants to see signs and wonders, but they market signs and wonders. If you come to our church, you'll see people, you'll hear people speaking in tongues, you'll see people raised up out of wheelchairs, you'll see, you know, sight given to the blind and, you know, people getting off addictions and these sorts of things. Um, they market signs and wonders. We have a church that is Pentecostal, and if you come, you'll see signs and wonders. And so that's part of the allure. That's part of the attraction. Um, and then its message, which I think is more powerful than its marketing. Of course, I would say its message is part of its marketing, but uh, its message is literally and intentionally directed at the two things pretty much all people desire most, health and wealth. So um, I would say right now with two cracked ribs and my entire body racked with pain, that so much so that prescription medicine doesn't really do anything, I would love to have my health back right now. And if anyone's been sick for any length of time, they've all felt the same impulse. They've all suffered in the same way. If anyone's ever gone broke or filed bankrupt or lost a business or um, lost a job, you, you know how this feels. In fact, I think it's deeply ingrained in all of us that everyone wants to have more money. And of course, those who have more money aren't any happier. But health and wealth are two things that all people want. Um, you might say, well, I don't think the, the tribesmen on the Serengeti wants more money well he might want want more goats and that's money for him so I, I think it's just intrinsic in our fallen nature to want these things uh, so we want health and wealth we want to see signs and wonders that's kind of part of our Adamic nature and so that is what Pentecostalism pushes it pushes the things that people want to see and people want to experience everybody wants a loaded bank account everybody wants to live a long healthy life without much suffering um, right and you know, do I fault them for that? Well, it's, I don't know what the, any of that has to do with following Christ, so I find difficulty there, but I think it's in our nature to want that. And this movement is crafty enough to aim at that. Crafty enough to aim at that. Two questions we must ask before we move on. First, is Pentecostalism, Pentecostalisms or any other groups ecstatic gibberish the genuine article? Is it real tongues? Is it authentic glossa? According to scripture, the answer would be uh, no, not at all. Um, second, so the first one is, no, we're not talking about what they do is not the real thing. It can't be. It's not human languages and other reasons. Second, do today's false tongues indicate the cessation of the spiritual gift of tongues? And I would have to answer that no. We can't draw our conclusion about whether tongues is ongoing or not based on imitations. If we were to do something like that, we, we might end up canceling out something that God is legitimately doing. 
I mean, the devil imitates everything that God does. And so if an imitation renders the real legitimate thing null and void, then we're in big trouble. So I would say we do not want to look at all of the false expressions and examples and say, it has to be gone because of all those. That's a foolish thing to do. No, on the contrary, we believe the testimony of Scripture indicates the cessation of tongues, of the spiritual gift of tongues. That's what I believe. I don't believe it's because there's imitations. There's imitation everything today. I believe it's because the Bible shows us that it has ceased. And I would back that up with the history of the New Testament because it's not represented in 24 of the 27 books. Only three books? It's gone. We don't see it. Uh, we don't see anything like the ecstatic gibberish or anything in Scripture. We don't see that. We don't see it throughout the... We, don't just, we just don't see it. And we don't see anything like that ongoing in the other books of the Bible. We don't even see the actual gift ongoing. So I would say, first and foremost, we believe the testimony of Scripture indicates the cessation of spiritual gift of tongues, not because there's imitations. And then I would back that with nearly 2,000 years of church history. Pentecostalism is not a, an accurate expression, I think, of actual church history. Um, I'll go out on a limb and call it one big imitation. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't some Pentecostal brothers and sisters in there, uh, just as there are some Roman Catholics. Um, if the gospel's being preached, the potential for salvation is there, undoubtedly. And God will save his people, and some of them might bear the title Pentecostal. Uh, but I, I think that the scripture's clear. What we're seeing is not it. Uh, the scripture's clear on when it ceased, or if not when it ceased, but showing that it did cease. It's backed by history. Um, like I said, the gift literally disappears during the end of the apostolic, or either during Paul's lifetime or at the end of the apostolic era. I think it, it ceased during Paul's life when he was in Rome. Uh, what we do see throughout the annals of history are a handful of cultic aberrations, phony imitations, and an explosion of something in 1906. That's what we see. Yeah, get a drink. And I would just say that I find it extremely hard to believe that the tongues that were born of the Spirit in the first century, in first century Jerusalem, because that's where it was born on the day of Pentecost, through the Spirit in Jerusalem, I, I find it hard to believe that, that that expression of tongues given under the leadership of the apostles that I believe ceased sometime during or at the end of the apostolic era, I cannot put my mind around or even entertain the idea of those tongues being the same tongues that appeared in 20th century Los Angeles under the leadership of William J. Seymour, a known false teacher. And by the way, not only was he a known false teacher, he was an outcast. He was a condemned outcast by the holiness movement. That movement banned him. So you know, the tongues that appear on Pentecost that are expressed in a few places, managed by the apostles, that obviously ceased, somehow they, by miraculous means, reappear. They started in Jerusalem, they reappear in Los Angeles, of all places? And, and, and at the hands and helm of a false teacher? That's a hard pill for me to swallow. Hard pill for me to swallow. I think the Bible and history are clear on the subject. And people are free to see scripture differently than me. They're free to try to interpret church history differently than me. They can disagree with me across the board. That's just fine. This isn't a battlefield issue for us Christians. It's not. If anything at all, maybe these sermons that I've been preaching on the spiritual gift of tongues will help folks understand how and why cessationists arrive at their conclusion. Maybe, if anything at all, it's got people, what I've been saying is got people thinking, and they can now take into consideration why I, and even how I, and many others have arrived at our conclusions. We don't see these aberrations in the Bible. We don't see tongues going beyond into the other 24 books. We, we do see it. Because of that, I think it's ceased. We don't see any real legitimate expression throughout history. Um, 
maybe, if anything at all, somebody will walk away from these messages and say, I can see why Pastor Phil and others and the elders at the church think the way they do. They've arrived at these conclusions through careful study and thought. I, I did not draw the conclusion that I hold today based on false imitations that are out there today. That would be reckless. No, I've sought to spend the greater part of the last 10 years trying to understand this phenomenon and better yet, trying to understand Scripture and measure all things against Scripture. So it's now time to move to the ninth and final spiritual gift on Paul's list. Hey, we're done with tongues. Yay. All right. You're probably saying, I hope Phil stops using his tongue soon because he talks a lot. Let's go to the next one. I, it's I, and that is interpretation. And we see this in verse 10e. Paul says to another, the interpretation of tongues. So in the previous verse, he says to some, he gives tongues. And now he's saying to others, the ability to interpret those tongues. I would say on the list of spiritual gifts here, interpretation is probably the most intriguing for me. You would think maybe tongues are, but they're not. I've studied it so much, I'm kind of tired of it. Uh, but interpretation is intriguing because God took me in a completely different direction this time when I've dealt with it before. And I think it's intriguing. This is because um, it can be two things. It can be either a learned ability, like you can be someone who interprets languages, literal human languages, or it can be a literal spiritual gift. So it can be either or, or both at the same time. So it's not just a supernatural spiritual gift through the Spirit. It is also a learned ability. And I'll explain why. Firstly, I would say everyone has, I mean, with the exception of tiny babies, right? And even they can understand what they're hearing sometimes because they're taught. But everyone has the ability to interpret a language, at least one, right? Some educated people in uh, North Africa and in Europe can speak multiple languages, interpret multiple languages. Here, we're pretty much one or two, maybe three. Um, so we all have the ability to speak and interpret a tongue, right? Ours is... English. It was our parents or maybe others that taught us how to, to interpret and speak our native tongue, whether it be English or Spanish or maybe Portuguese. Those three languages are pretty heavy in our community um, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I would say I have the ability to interpret English and I would draw a distinction because there's different dialects of English. I have the ability to interpret American English really well. Uh, however, British English Indian English, which is AKA AT&T Operator English, haha, uh, Scottish English, and other English dialects, I mean, they can be really, really challenging to interpret as an English speaker. Um, you talk to maybe um, an English person who's Cockney, who speaks Cockney British English, and uh, have fun with that. Um, that's a tough one to, to understand. Uh, but the point is general. Uh, we all possess the ability to translate at least one language, our native tongue. Interestingly, tongues as a learned ability was demonstrated on Pentecost, wasn't it? On the day of Pentecost, it was. When the apostles spoke in other glossa languages as the Spirit gave them utterance, those standing nearby heard them speaking in their own languages and then they're the ones that heard them in their own languages give the interpretation. They're describing the mighty works of God. So in that particular scenario on Pentecost, there were no supernaturally gifted interpreters that I know of. There were people who just understood the languages that were being spoken to them. They became the interpreters. So, and that's, of course, Acts chapter 2, 4 to 11. Um, so I would say at Pentecost, interpretation did not come supernaturally but through the learned ability of those audience members. Um, they heard the word in their tongues, and then they gave an interpretation of what was being said. In this scenario, interpretation is a skill, not a spiritually manifested gift or a spirit-manifested gift. It's just not. Your ability, my ability to interpret English is not a spiritual gift. It's a learned skill. It's a learned ability. My ability to speak in a tongue English is a real human language. That's a learned ability. It did not come to me supernaturally. Um, <laughs> my parents had to teach it to me, and uh, I've been destroying it ever since. Uh, in fact, when we see the interpretation of tongues in the book of Acts, like as a whole, not just in chapter 2, they are basically all identical to that of Pentecost. Or Pentecost. 
For example, when Cornelius and his household spoke in tongues, Peter and the Jews heard it in their primary tongue, which would have been either Hebrew or Aramaic. And then they gave the interpretation. They said, we hear them exalting God in our own tongue. Acts 10, verse 46. So, exact same situation in Acts 2 at Pentecost and at Acts 10 at Cornelius' house. The languages were spoke supernaturally because Cornelius was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, which were not languages he knew. But the interpretation was done through natural skill by those who understood those tongues. So we can see that in Acts 2 and Acts 10, um, interpretation was once again a skill, not a spirit-manifested gift. Now one could argue that every human skill and ability and you know, whether you have the ability to speak in this tongue or that tongue and to interpret those tongues, they would say and argue, well, those are all gifts from God. And I would say, amen, hallelujah. Um, we're all familiar with what James 1.17a says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, right? I would agree with that. But that is not at all the point that Paul is seeking to make in the text. He's not talking about generalized gifts and everything, the gift of life and breath and language and sight and food and rain and everything else through the providence of God. He's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritual gifts here and natural abilities. Um, so you've got, firstly, you've got interpretation as a learned ability. And I think this was the most common occurrence um, that we see when we're talking about people speaking in supernatural tongues. They're being interpreted by people who understood the languages, not supernaturally, but actually naturally through learned ability. I think that is the most common occurrence prior to the cessation of the spiritual gift of tongues. Um, that's what you see in Acts. You don't see people speaking in foreign languages and then people being supernaturally anointed by the Spirit to interpret those languages. They already know the languages. Um, basically, I'll put it like this. People heard the word in their own languages and interpreted what was said. So there's the the learned ability of interpretation. It's a learned ability. You and I have that. Um, and again, in churches, tongues, uh, what, in churches, tongues was meant for the common good, provided that someone there, someone present, could interpret, right? Um, how could a somebody speaking supernaturally in a language they do not know, how could they doing that, which would be an amazing thing to behold, how could that be beneficial to anyone if there's no interpretation? Why would that person supernaturally speak in a language ever, in a language that nobody there knows? Or why would God not provide some sort of interpretation if it's a group of people that speak other languages or what have you? So it doesn't make very much sense to me. Um, if it's for the common good, that means that when that gift was given, the gift of interpretation would have been given or things would have been spoken in a context where those tongues were understood. So I think that's good basic logic. You had to have somebody there who understood they had to interpret. And not only did they have to interpret, they had to tell people what was said. Um, in Corinth, there were people speaking in all sorts of exotic foreign tongues, right? It was a cultural melting pot. It was a trade city. People from all over the world, from every tribe and tongue, came through that place. Everybody spoke different languages. And this would include different languages being manifested in the church. But in the church at Corinth, the tongues that were called glossa and applied as a spiritual gift was just ecstatic gibberish. And there was nobody there to interpret that ecstatic gibberish. And I think I said it last week, but um, gibberish cannot be interpreted because it's not a language. Only languages can be interpreted. Uh, and so the people there in Corinth, cultural melting pot, had all sorts of languages. There were people there that were learned, educated, and they could speak in multiple languages. It could be that somebody was just speaking in an actual human language as a tongue, but there was no one there to interpret. They were speaking a language that people there did not understand, and or there was no one gifted with interpretation. This is what was happening. And this is exactly why Paul said, if there was no one to interpret, then let them keep silent but the one who's speaking in the tongue, if there's no one there to, to, to interpret what's being said, then be quiet. Let them say these things later in a smaller context or something like that. 
you, you're not supposed to just ramble on and on in a tongue that nobody can understand. That's not beneficial to the church. And of course, that's exactly what we see happening again today. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 28. How can tongues serve the common good if there is no interpretation? Um, when I worked in retail eons ago, I had Spanish-speaking customers come into the store all the time, and they were lovely people. I just couldn't understand them. And if they didn't bring a translator with them, and it was usually like a young child, some school-age young boy or young girl, um, they would usually bring an interpreter. But if they didn't, it was literally impossible for me to help them. I would try to communicate with them by pointing and by making hand gestures, by making, I sold stereo, so I would make sounds. Oh, you, you, you want, you want boom, boom, boom. You know, I, I just, I must have looked like a Pentecostal to these people. They were probably thinking, what the heck is wrong with this guy? But um, I tried to communicate, but there was a language barrier and that made it pretty much impossible. And they would pretty much just stand there in bewilderment when they didn't have interpretation. My boss got smart and started hiring some various guys that could speak Spanish at some point. But this was like 10 years after the fact, which made it really hard. Um, I would just say without translation between me and a, a Spanish-speaking client, no good commerce could be conducted. I couldn't sell them anything. It was just a very frustrating experience. And, you know, of course either of us would get impatient with one another because when you're trying to communicate with somebody and they can't understand you, it can grind you a little bit. But when they came in with a little interpreter, that little Mexican boy or girl, when they communicated between us, magic happened. I mean, you know, it just amazing things would happen, but not before I would drop my price a little bit. That's a cultural thing for Mexican people. They want a little better deal, so... I'd give a little better deal, and I'd give the deal through the kid and all that, and then just signs and wonders followed, literally. You know, I we next thing you know, we're pulling somebody's Cadillac Escalade in, and we're installing four 12W7s in the back of that bad boy, right? Money in the bank, fresh food on the table, new kicks on my kid's feet. I mean, it was beautiful. All sorts of common good things happening when the language barrier went down understand I give this illustration because it's exactly the same in the church if the language barrier is there no common good can be accomplished but if it's brought down through supernatural tongues and through either supernatural translation or interpretation and or normal interpretation because the person is speaking in the language everyone understands common good happens people are joined together they're built up in retail sales are made and Families are fed. You know, that's how I fed my family for eons. Um, you know, but if you have languages being used in a church and there's no interpretation, I, I mean, nothing. It's, it's like being on the retail floor again. And there's a language breakdown and nothing good is going to come out of that. It's going to be a, a bad situation. And this is exactly what was happening in Corinth. This church was blasting out in various tongues nobody could understand they were doing the ecstatic gibberish nobody could understand that nobody was interpreting it was just an absolute disaster and i actually have a hard time embracing the idea that the corinthians actually possessed the real spiritual gifts of tongues and interpretation i have kind of a hard time believing they had it just because paul said a lot about it doesn't mean they actually possessed it um i would explain it like this. God is a God of order. We know this. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. It's amazing that he mentions that in the next chapter, right? They've got chaos in their church, especially through tongues. And he's like, God's God of order. Hello. Um, God's a God of order with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow due to change. James chapter 1, verse 17b. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. So God is a God of order. Um, there's nothing, there's no variation in him, no shiftiness. He's the same always. What he does is always precise and perfect and holy. Um, so when he gives a learned talent, a sharpened talent, when he gives a spiritual gift, he's going to empower those things to accomplish their particular purposes. 1 Corinthians 12, 6. So when God gives a spiritual gift, 
and intends for it to be for the common good of the church, it will absolutely be for the common good of the church and achieve its purposes because he's a God of order. He never changes. He's perfect. Understand my logic? Okay? If two talents or two spiritual gifts are needed to accomplish a singular purpose, like with tongues and interpretation, God will grant both either to a particular individual or to that body. Okay? What am I saying? What I'm saying is that if the spiritual gift of tongues was manifested in a church, you could bet your bottom dollar that the spiritual gift of interpretation was also manifested. Or God gave, God, you know, the people there, God gave the supernatural tongue in a language they understood. God is not going to give a spiritual gift that becomes defeated and doesn't work. They're going to work. They're going to function because he's a God of order. He's a God of perfection. And you might think, well, we can get in the way of that sometimes. Absolutely. But he'll still meet his objectives. He'll still achieve his purposes. Um, ask yourself this. Why would God give one gift without the other while knowing that both are necessary to achieve his divine purpose? It's basic logic. We might ask if that's the case and that actually happens, then is God maybe a I don't know, is he a game player with his people? Does he play games with us? Does he like to tease his people? Here's one, but you can't actually utilize it without the other. But I'm not going to give the other to your church. What? God wants his church to be orderly like he is orderly and to be holy like he is holy. He wants his people to be unified as he and the Son and the Spirit are unified. Um... There's no way that God is going to grant something that ends in disaster. It's just not going to happen. Um, so, no, God does not play games. God does not tease his people. Um, when we see tongues as a natural talent or as a spiritual gift without interpretation, I think that we can know that that expression of that is not from God because God is not going to do one without the other. I think that's a great general rule of thumb. And sadly, this is exactly what we see happening in Corinth. They spoke in ecstatic gibberish, they spoke in a few foreign languages, and there was no interpretation. And in the middle of all this, they're calling all of it the spiritual gift of glossa, of tongues. Look, we all have this gift, we're all speaking it, we're all exercising it, isn't this beautiful? And not one word is understood by anybody which means the overarching arcing objective of the common good of that body and uniting them is not happening. So I find it very hard to believe that that's a real, those are real expressions of real gifts happening there. Or maybe they are, and maybe they're so utterly abused by these people. I don't know. It's a very tough thing for me to get my mind around. This is why I question the legitimacy of some of their gifts in this church because of the disarray and the abuse and no interpretation these sorts of things think of it like this if god grants the gift of tongues he's also going to grant the gift of interpretation okay unless it's a natural ability if god gives somebody the gift to speak in spanish and he doesn't know spanish and he starts speaking it it's going to be in front of people who understand and can interpret spanish this is the way it works in the new testament that's how it works in acts but if there was another situation where it was far more supernatural and the spiritual gift of tongues is given in a moment and the spiritual gift of interpretation is given, then so be it. At least there's communication happening and somebody can tell people what's being said. Again, that's not what we see today and it's not what you see in Corinth. If the tongue is a learned human language, the speaker himself, along with any others there who know that language, they're going to be the interpreters. And again, that's the exact scenario we see in Acts. If the tongue is an unlearned human language, God will grant the speaker. Oh, by the way, this is a fascinating point. If somebody is given the gift of glossa, the ability to speak in a language they do not know, God can simultaneously gift them with interpretation so that they themselves can become the interpreter. Did you know that? That's pretty exciting. And that's actually stated in 1 Corinthians 14, 13. All I would say at that point is that now, if that becomes the precedent and everybody's speaking in gibberish again and interpreting it, you've got to disqualify it because it's gibberish. 
if he doesn't grant the ability of interpretation to the speaker, he will grant it to somebody else there. The point is that where there is glossa, tongues, there will be harmonia. That's the Greek word for interpretation. You can't have one without the other. It's like love and marriage. Ask Al Bundy. Both gifts will be simultaneously manifested by the Spirit within the same body, sometimes in the same person. And that's how it was in the first century. But when you have one without the other, there is no simfero, no good in the form of communication, which helps to perpetuate and cultivate unity. When it comes to these spiritual gifts, it takes two to tango. If you take one away, you either have tan or go. You don't have tango. Uh, when we see stuff today, here are some questions we should ask. Firstly, is there a language barrier in that gathering? Would there even need to be the spiritual gift of tongues there? Are there language barriers? Because that's, again, if there's any enduring reason for it to be going, that would be it today and nothing else. So, firstly, we ask, is there a language barrier here? Can we tell there's a language barrier um, in that gathering? Is the tongue speaker speaking intelligible human languages? I mean, you may not understand a language, but you can still tell it's a language. You know when somebody's rattling off gibberish. So we should ask ourselves, is there a need for it here because there's language barriers? Is he even speaking in an intelligible human language? I don't know what it is, but I can tell it's a language. Boy, that sure sounds Russian. And usually it's not Russian. It's some block state. Um, I, I, and then secondly, I would say... Um, or maybe this is the third one, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Is there an interpreter? Is there an interpretation? Has somebody just recited what has been said? And then I would say, does the interpretation affirm Scripture, does it serve the common good by bringing believers together? Um, those would be four really good questions to ask. Is there a language barrier? Is the tongue speaker speaking human languages? Is there interpretation? And does the interpretation affirm Scripture? Uh, and build common good, join believers together, which, by the way, Scripture all by itself can do. We don't need a supernatural tongue to do that. The scripture is fully sufficient and can do it on its own. And so some people have said there is absolutely no need for tongues. I will not recognize any form of it today as being legitimate because we have the full revelation of God in Scripture. Pretty good, pretty good angle to go with there if you think about it. I would just simply say if those requisites that I just identified and described or met, I might become maybe a little bit more open to the possibility of the continuation of the spiritual gift of tongues, but I would still be quite hesitant for the reasons that I've been describing. <laughs> the meaning of the word in the New Testament, the absence of it in most of the New Testament, history not affirming any of this, uh, if, if the reasons go on and on, I would still be highly skeptical. I may never fully embrace it, and I wouldn't want to do that to the degree that I'm sitting against God by rec not recognizing what he's doing, but um, so I, I want to be cautious, but um, I, want to, I want to tell you what I believe above all else and what I will stand on, because it is for today. And that is what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. I went big on this one last week. Scripture makes a man or woman of God complete. That's essential that we understand that. Okay? We have one more verse to cover, and then we're wrapping up. Verse 11 all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This verse summarizes verses 4 through 10. It reiterates the main point of the first portion from Paul on carnal worship. Paul continues to stress that each gift, though different in many ways from the others, is supernaturally and sovereignly given by one and the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the fifth reference in this section to the Holy Spirit as the giver of the spiritual gifts. Can you believe that? In this short, simple paragraph, five times Paul says these gifts come from the Spirit. Every gift, all nine, they all come from the Spirit. And there's more in Romans. Um, the point Paul was driving at through all this repetition is that since the gifts come from the Spirit, they are not intended for self-exaltation, self-grandization. They're not intended for our own glory or for our own um, egos or displays or any of that stuff they they come from the spirit which means they're intended to bring God glory and good to the body and another thing we see today is a lot of showing off with the ecstatic gibberish um, and so they, they were never intended for anything like that and Paul's repetition about them coming from the spirit 
drives that point home. They came from the Spirit. They came from the Spirit. They don't come from pagan temples. They don't come from you. The supernatural spiritual gifts are not learned abilities. They come from the Spirit. They're not from pagan temples. You can't train anyone to do them. You can't teach anyone to do them. They either come from the Spirit or they don't. And, and the whole purpose is to bring God glory through bringing the people of God together. So, as a rule of thumb, if what we see doesn't do that, there's big trouble in little China here, literally. They are for scriptural service. That's what the spiritual gifts are for, including tongues and interpretation. And maybe, you know, through this whole thing, you've kind of been sitting there and listening, not just today and through the several weeks, but you've been, you know, you don't really know what your spiritual gift is, and you're sitting there kind of wondering, you know, well, he's talking about spiritual gifts. What's my spiritual gift? Well, it's not wrong to ask that question. It's not wrong to pray about that. It's not wrong to talk to people about it, elders, other Christians. Sometimes it's easier for those you're closest to to help you identify a spiritual gift than it is for you. Um, and maybe you don't know what it is, but it's okay, because if you are an actual believer, God has given you at least one spiritual gift. And he wants you to discover what it is. If you don't know what it is, he wants you to discover what it is. 1 Corinthians 14.1 he wants you to develop it. Believe it or not, spiritual gifts are given, but they can still be exercised in the study of the word and various things. He wants you to, to he wants you to discover what it is. He wants you to develop it. Second Timothy one six, where he says, he says to um, Paul says to Timothy, I want you to fan into flame the gift that was given to you through the impartation of my hands. Fan into flame means work at it, practice it. And practice makes perfect, right? So he wants you to discover it. He wants you to develop it. These are scriptural encouragements, and he wants you to deploy it. 1 Peter 4.10 talks about take your spiritual gifts and use them for the body. So um, discover, develop, and deploy. Three Ds, remember those things. Uh, and if you need help with this, just figuring out what the gift is or where to plug it in, um, obviously you can talk to the elders or probably others at the church that are in leadership positions. We're all ready and willing to help. We're ready to assist. Um, what I want to walk away with as we close is something that I mentioned several weeks ago, and Pastor Cameron, bless his heart, he really saved me last night by going and taking care of this event I had, because um, I just cannot walk, but he brought this up last Sunday as well, and just lay into it here by saying that some of the spiritual gifts we've looked at are categorized as signs and wonders, right? Healings, one, uh, healings miracles, unknown human languages, um, you know, the, the ability to speak in glossa, a language you don't know, uh, and, of course, supernatural interpretation, not natural interpretation. These are all, they would be categorized under signs and wonders gifts. And I'm the one that's been saying for weeks that signs and wonders gift, gifts have ceased. But he said something about this last week, and I said something about it a few weeks ago. And I would say this, too. As a Bible-studying cessationist, I believe these signs and wonders and these spiritual gifts, they're gone. But there is and does remain a kind of sign and wonder that is ongoing. There is a sign and wonder that is ongoing. This is what Cameron said. This is what I said. It is the sign and wonder of a new creation, a sinner that has been supernaturally regenerated by the Holy Spirit and literally brought to life, raised to life through resurrection power in Christ Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 17, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Um, Believers are walking signs and wonders, miracles on feet. May our transformed, sanctified, holy lives serve as a sign to unbelievers that Jesus saves to the uttermost. And when they see our good deeds, and more importantly, when they see our real, genuine, transparent, heartfelt, compassionate love for one another. May it fill those on the outside of the church. May it fill them with a sense of wonder that drives them to ask questions. And when they ask, may we be ready to give an answer for the hope we have.